It's closing in upon us. The hospitals are prepared for being overwhelmed. Some patients are testing positive. Some people are being quarantined. The coronavirus. It feels anxiety-provoking. We feel helpless. However, if you look at the science, I actually feel a lot more hopeful for society and our health, at least for the near term. Hi, I'm Dr. Simon Madorsky, Medical Director and Founder of Skin Cancer and Reconstructive Surgery Center, SCAR Center, and Appearance Center of Newport Beach. Although what this podcast is meant to be is about the things that I love, skin cancer, plastic surgery, and cosmetic surgery, this time we decided for our inaugural podcast to talk about the coronavirus and what we can do. All right. So, by the way, if you want to learn more about this and you want to see some of the graphics that we'll present, follow us on our YouTube channel, SCAR Center or Skin Cancer and Reconstructive Surgery Center, where the same podcast will have video uh, material available together with the podcast. Okay, coronavirus. There's several coronaviruses and they've been present with us and with humans for many years. The most common is a human coronavirus that's endemic, meaning it lives within the human population and causes minor infections. It's called HCOV-229E. It's an endemic human coronavirus that may cause some common cold symptoms. However, that's not what we're all concerned about. The coronavirus we're concerned about is actually something that causes severe respiratory syndrome. Let's go back in years to 2002. The first respiratory affecting coronavirus came into existence as far as we know. MERS coronavirus, M-E-R-S, stands for Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus. It was originally discovered in the Middle East and it apparently came from bats who infected camels and then humans drank camel milk. It was not as um, widespread as the modern coronavirus is of 2019. Shortly after that, in 2003, a SARS coronavirus 1, although back then it was just called SARS coronavirus, came out in China. Again from bats, it infected an animal called a civet. It's a raccoon-type animal, a civet is. Again, it was transmitted from civets to humans, and the SARS coronavirus 1 epidemic occurred, mostly in Asia, and it was well-contained. That virus was not as infectious. We fast forward to 2019, where the disease similar to the SARS develops late in 2019 in Wuhan province in China. The virus at that point is named COVID-19, stands for Coronavirus Infectious Disease, discovered in 2019. In January, it really takes hold, and at that point, it's renamed Novel Coronavirus 2019. It's called NCOV. And recently, it's been renamed officially now as SARS Coronavirus 2. Now, what is SARS? SARS stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. The problem with that syndrome is there's a significant death rate associated with it. The current SARS epidemic has a death rate anywhere from 1 to 2.5% internationally. Also, the problem with this virus is it spreads much more and has spread much more than the previous viruses, such as the MERS coronavirus or the SARS coronavirus 1. So, why the social distancing, the shutting down of public spaces, this whole travel restriction and self-quarantine? 
Aren't we all just going to get it? Well, it's possible we all may get it. However, we need to do something, and there are two reasons to do it. Number one is we've learned that some countries have been successfully able to limit the epidemic of coronavirus, namely Taiwan. We'll get back to that later. But first, let's get back to one of my modern heroes of this era of epidemics, and that's Anthony Fauci. Anthony Fauci is the director of National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH, National Institutes of Health. You've seen him on some of the TV programs and the presidential press conferences. He's described it as we need to flatten the curve. As the epidemic progresses, the number of people infected can rise very rapidly without all of these measures that we put in place, the social isolation, the social distancing. If the number of cases rises rapidly, our healthcare system will be overwhelmed. The hospitals would not be able to handle all the cases coming in. Some people can be helped with respirator support and ventilator support, but with too many patients, some will not get access to that advanced care and will die. That is why we need to flatten the curve. We need to decrease the number of new cases coming in so hospitals can deal with it. And if we need to prolong this epidemic longer so that people can cycle through the hospitals and survive and come out on the other side healthy, we will do that. And that's what flattening the curve is. Now, let's look at some interesting statistics. If you don't flatten the curve, Italy, 2020, SARS epidemic. We've seen in the news, it's been a veritable disaster in Italy. The number of cases has skyrocketed. Their government-run healthcare system has been completely overwhelmed. People are dying. Let's compare Taiwan and Italy. Fascinating statistics, actually. So Taiwan has 24 million people population. Italy has 60 million, slightly more than double. Taiwan, as of March 13th, has had 53 cases and one death. That's about 2% of the population, or 2% of the known infected individuals, death rate. Italy, compared to 53 cases in Taiwan, has 21,557 cases and 1,441 deaths at 6.7% death rate. That is staggering numbers of the difference between Taiwan and Italy. What does Taiwan did differently? Taiwan first experienced the first SARS epidemic back in 2002-2003 that came from China across the Straits to Taiwan. Remember, Taiwan is a country off of the southeastern coast of China. It is not a communist country. It is independent of China, and it's primarily a capitalist, democratic country. Taiwan said never again. They've implemented strict public health measures, strict travel restriction measures, in 2002-2003 in preparation for anything else that may come from China. And it did. In 2019, when cases started to occur in Wuhan, Taiwan quickly implemented all these measures from some uh, 17 years prior. And they've been extraordinarily successful in limiting the spread. They've created social isolation. They've been tracking patients or uh, people that have been exposed potentially to Wuhan virus. And they've done it very effectively, as the numbers show. What's interesting is other countries um, like uh, South Korea, which has an advanced medical system, has also doubled the, uh, the population of Taiwan, 51 million. And South Korea has had 8,086 cases compared to Taiwan's 53 as of March 13th and 72 deaths 
which reflects a 1% death rate. The death rate, interestingly, reflects the advanced nature of South Korean medicine compared to Italy, which is a government-run healthcare system and is simply unable to take care of all the people. Interesting statistics now. Some of the interesting statistics that came out recently is the number of acute care beds or ICU beds um, per population in different countries. Now, we need these acute care beds and ICU beds in order to take care of the sickest patients, the patients that come down with a severe acute respiratory syndrome where the breathing is affected and they need ventilator support. Let's look at the numbers, and we'll have this graphic for you on the YouTube video. United States have, has 34.7 beds, um, critical care beds per 100,000 inhabitants. Germany has 29.2 beds. Italy has 12.5 beds. No wonder Italians are dying. They're not able to get access to this critical care in their country. South Korea has 10.6 beds, interestingly enough. And um, China, where the epidemic came from, has 3.6 beds. Of course, they've been building like crazy. Um, and so they've been able to respond to this epidemic uh, with some degree, to some degree. All right. So now let's talk about the people who get infected, the infected individuals. Let's look at the natural course of the coronavirus. So first of all, transmission of coronavirus is mostly through coughing and sneezing, aerosolized droplets that then enter the recipient's eyes or nose, either directly by inhalation within six feet of the sneezing victim, because that's how far the aerosolization can go, or by touching objects that on which the infected mucus has been deposited. By touching it and then inoculating our nose or our eyes, the transmission of the virus occurs. So what happens when we are inoculated with the virus before we actually get the symptoms? Well, first, there's an incubation period. It's about four to five. It's about five days on average right now. That's what we know. However, the range is variable, meaning the incubation period is the time until clinical symptoms are evident and we know someone has an infection. So the range of incubation can be anywhere from two days to 12 days. That means a person can be completely asymptomatic, not showing any symptoms, and brewing and developing more and more viral particles in their bodies. Even though the average days is five days, some of the data recently has been coming out that the incubation period in rare individuals can be up to 24 days. That is a little bit disturbing, but these are outliers and we can talk about that later. So, but two to 12 days, and that, of course, explains why the self-quarantine and isolation after you've had contact with an infected individual should be two weeks. Because within 12 days, probably 99% of people who will manifest the disease, we will know will manifest the disease. So after you, within the two week of your quarantine, if you have not shown any signs of the disease, then we assume you're not infected and you're free to go into the society and interact. Now, what happens when you do get the disease? The incubation period is over, the first clinical signs and symptoms occur. The most common one are really general viral symptoms, malaise, not feeling well, flu-like, and um, muscle aches, pretty generic viral symptoms. However, there are some specific symptoms that can occur. These most specific symptom for coronavirus is cough. 
The second one is a sore throat. And finally, of course, what everybody knows, fevers. Surprisingly, the nasal symptoms, nasal drainage, the common cold type symptoms are not that prevalent in coronavirus, but it can occur in less than 5% of individuals. Or the gastrointestinal presentation with diarrhea, nausea can also occur, but also in a very few individuals. So majority of people present with the symptoms of muscle aches, malaise, cough, sore throats, and fevers. So these symptoms generally progress over one week. Pretty generic symptoms. But by eight days, some people progress to the respiratory symptoms. Shortness of breath, need for additional oxygenation. And by nine days, significant pulmonary damage starts to occur and people may need intensive care unit help. So first week is called the prodrome phase. Second week could be severe SARS phase, the one where you really need hospital support and help. It's pretty shocking to see, by the way, when you scan the lungs of patients who are in the SARS phase of this disease, what you see is ground glass appearance. You see this white patchy infiltrate into the lungs and the ability of oxygenation starts to diminish. And the worst case, of course, is called pneumonia or pneumonitis from this virus, from the injury. All right, now, an interesting quote comes up on the internet, and this is by Dr. Matthew McCarthy, who's an associate professor of Cornell Medical Center. He said, counting the number of cases of coronavirus is like looking at a light from a distant star. We all know that the star that we see in the sky is from the light that we see is from billions of years ago, and the star has probably moved or may have become extinct since then. And same thing with coronavirus presentations. By the time we see these numbers, there, whatever we're seeing has occurred already up to two weeks prior. But that two-week period is giving us enough time to understand the progression of this epidemic. Now, what is percentage of patients that progress to the severe disease, the SARS, the hospitalization? It's about 20 to 30%. That is significant. It requires additional oxygen support, and the fatality rate from this disease is about 1 to 2.3%. Now, Italy's fatality rate of upwards of 7 or 8% is pretty disturbing, but maybe it's a function of their lack of intensive care unit beds. China's mortality rate has been 2.3%, but maybe that's because they're under-reporting cases. We simply do not know. There's a lot that's left unknown, but it seems to be that in, in, in Western countries with open systems and us knowing the numbers, the death rate is about 1% to 2%. That is significant. The infectiousness of this disease is also significant because it seems to infect a lot more people than, than uh, the common influenza. So we think, why is it different than common influenza? Well, first of all, common influenza's death rate is 0.1% at least 10 to 20 times less than the death rate from SARS coronavirus too. Also, common influenza doesn't spread through the public as rapidly. We have a 30% um, uh, immunization rate and generally symptoms come on so rapidly people self-isolate. So that's the difference between SARS and coronavirus. Okay, treatment. Right now there's treatment available in China. The um, They've used an antiviral medication called combination called lopinavir and 
ritonavir. These are both AIDS drugs, antiretroviral drugs that they're testing. We're not sure if that really works. Um, a couple of other drugs used in the Western countries are remdesivir, made by Gilead, and it's primarily was designed and used for Ebola epidemic. It's been shown to have efficacy in cultured pulmonary cells and in some mouse models. Right now it's used in um, the United States for people who are severely ill, and we're yet to see whether it makes a significant difference. A second drug is actually an old drug used. It's an anti-malarial drug called chloroquine, and that's also used with remdesivir in people who are severely ill in American hospitals. Alrighty, now viral spread after, in, after contraction of the disease occurs primarily when people are the sickest. So the people in the incubation phase generally don't spread the virus, but as they start to get sick and they have more virus in their body, they start to shed the virus and they can be infectious. So even before people show all the symptoms of the virus, low-grade infectious symptoms can occur. Um, and they can spread it to the people before they show the symptoms. But really, majority of the spread occurs in the sickest individuals. What's interesting is uh, Lancet Journal, this is a British medical journal, had reported that the virus actually um, can spread from individuals 8 to 37 days after they start showing symptoms. And another statistic is the virus can spread 20 days after resolution of symptoms. So they, these are now infected individuals and physicians are managing them appropriately by keeping them isolated even after they seem to recover. Here's another interesting factoid. Of all the people that um, been tested with this not quite readily available test for coronavirus in the United States, how many have tested positive for coronavirus? This is called PCR testing. What's interesting is Quest and LabCorp, the two major lab companies, have shown that overall their data shows that only 1% to 2% of tested individuals are actually tested positive for coronavirus. So what's happening to the other 98 or 99%? Those people are likely exhibiting signs of other viruses like respiratory syncytial virus, common cold, or influenza. Interestingly enough, in South Korea, the positivity rate of testing was only 3 to 4%, and they had a much greater epidemic. So most people that present with symptoms probably will not have coronavirus. The danger of the coronavirus is the asymptomatic spread um, and some of the people who have the virus and testing negatively. This is starting to come out just recently. And with the incubation period that can be up to 24 days, that gets a little spooky because there could be other people that can spread the virus that are not really infected. Now, beware of the fomites. Now, what are fomites, you may ask? These are objects that transmit the virus. Obvious spread is when someone sneezes and we inhale the virus in. But there are other ways that the virus spreads. And probably the most avoidable way is by uh, avoiding transmission through the fomites. So fomites are any object. It could be this microphone, it could be my computer. It could be anything that has viral particles deposited upon it by a sick individual, and then I touch, and then I transmit to my nose or my eyes. So there's some good science, actually, on the viral ability to survive on the fomites. At room temperature, the virus can survive up to nine days on an object, on a surface. The average lifespan is about four to five days. A fascinating article published in the Journal of Hospital Inf Infection this year 
uh, analyzes coronavirus survival, various coronaviruses, by the way, survival on surfaces. And in our show notes, you'll have um, a link to this article, which is open on the internet. Basically, the virus, they're showing again that the virus survives two to nine days, but it survives less at warmer temperatures over 30 degrees um, centigrade. And also, uh, but at four degrees centigrade, much colder climates, um, it survives for 28 days. So in warmer, it survives less. In colder, it survives more. Also, it showed that at 50% humidity, it survives better than at drier 30% humidity. Another interesting article from um, Journal of Virological Methods was a study done in 2004 on the original SARS coronavirus. They looked at different ways that the virus can be inactivated. They found that heat inactivates the virus at 65 degrees centigrade. Acidic environment, less than 3 pH, that would be our stomach pH, will kill the virus. And ultraviolet rays in the very uh, low spectrum, UVC, which is about 259 nanometers, that's below UVA and UVB, uh, can actually inactivate the virus very rapidly. And that's actually one of the disinfection techniques used in some hospital settings. So that actually speaks to the fact that viruses do have some seasonality. As temperature gets warmer, the virus survives less time on the surfaces. As there's more UV in the um, that comes out of the skies and where the sun is higher in, in the sky, the uh, virus also survives a little bit less. So as we approach the warmer climates, naturally the viral survival on surfaces will diminish and its infectiousness will also diminish. All right, I'd like to finish this podcast with my thoughts on the brighter uh, side of things. There is some optimism to be had. If you look at the science right now, it appears that the wave of this viral transmission should occur over six to eight weeks. And um, by that time, most of it will burn out and hopefully we can come back to normal life. The other phenomena that occurred was this coming together of industry and science at the White House press conference on March 13th. I was really impressed by all the business leaders from Target and CVS and Walmart come together and actually um, with the science leaders um, like Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of NIH Infectious Diseases, um, and have a plan to uh, battle this virus as a country. Um, the, um, the other bright, uh, bright aspect of the whole thing is that there is some hope for antiviral medications like remdesivir that's being currently used and tested. Maybe if used earlier in the infection, it can actually stop the spread. And um, finally, the development of a vaccine that's right now in progress. Even though a vaccine has been developed, the testing of it will take several months before we know if it's truly active. So be well, stay tuned for more on coronavirus and all things skin cancer and plastic surgery. My name is Dr. Simon Madorsky, and thank you for tuning in.